Hello there, you are very welcome to Over the Wire, the podcast from the Anderson's Town News and BelfastMedia.com. If this is your first time joining us, we are celebrating 50 years of the Anderson's Town News with a podcast looking back at the stories and the people who made the Anderson's Town News and indeed West Belfast what it is today. Now, on the 31st of October 1983, a public meeting was held in Conway Mill to launch a campaign to save Celtic Park on the Donegal Road after the site was earmarked for redevelopment into a Dunstore supermarket. Among those gathered were Greyhound enthusiasts, ex-Belfast Celtic fans, youth workers and city centre business owners who were objecting to this plan. I'm delighted to say that for this episode, we are joined by journalist, broadcaster and chair of the Belfast Celtic Society, Porrick Hoyle. Porrick, you're very welcome to the podcast. How are you keeping? I'm fine, James. Thank you very much for the invitation. Glad to at any time talk about the history of Belfast Celtic uh, because, you know, what a club they were. And now many of our listeners will probably remember Belfast's Celtic Park when it was a Greyhound track. But am I right in saying that before that, it was probably one of the most state-of-the-art football grounds on these islands? Yes, I mean, I, I suppose you have to make comparisons, you know, with, uh, um, you know, thinking of, of what was accepted practice at the time. But yes, back in the day, Belfast Celtic was regarded, or Celtic Park rather, was regarded as one of the, the best grounds in, in Britain, in Ireland, in Europe, because of the, the quality of the, of the playing surface. It, uh, as you know, is in what was called back then the Bog Meadows. And the Belfast Celtic directors of the time uh, acquired it just at the turn of the 1900s. And it was a 10-acre site um, on the Donegal Road. And over a period of maybe 30 years or more, they gradually carried out improvements to both the playing surface and the facilities. Now, um, the, the playing surface uh, became one of the best playing surfaces uh, in football in Britain or Ireland. And uh, it was so good. In fact, the, 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 the legend goes that players were only allowed play on the pitch on match day. And that uh, all other times when they were training, they had to use the outfield, the areas behind each of the goals, because it was a big site and um, it was a greyhound track as well. It, it was it was many things, but there was plenty of room for the, the team, the squad, the various teams to actually rehearse or to to train, uh, to prepare without going anywhere near the surface. And it's it's told that some of the local kids in the area were paid to go in and uh, weed the, the playing surface whenever it was uh, necessary just to try and have the surface as perfect as it could be. It took, a, it took a while, but certainly, I think without exception, you know, it was one of the best playing surfaces that any professional footballer could have asked for. I think it's fair to say from what you've described there, Celtic Park, it sounds more than a football ground. It sounds more than a greyhound track. Was it a real hub of the community? It became so, because uh, I think we need to kind of go back to that stage and remember, you know, this, uh, this was the day before, you know, 24-hour uh, television, a variety of sports channels that you could watch football anywhere in the world on or boxing or any sport you wanted. Back in the day, you know, you, you didn't have uh, uh, those channels available. Uh, a lot of the grounds in Belfast and Celtic Park included, 
provided other amenities and facilities and certainly Celtic Park because of its size it in some ways could have been could have been described as um, forerunner of, of um, a, a community centre a leisure centre a place where the lo local people could go and have a bit of fun and certainly the the policy of the Belfast Celtic directors at the time was to they wanted Celtic Park to be constantly bringing in cash, turning a bob, as, uh, as the expression would be. So outside of the football season, they would uh, arrange all kinds and all manner of entertainments, be it circuses, boxing tournaments, uh, pony racing, uh, pony trotting, uh, the, uh, what became greyhound racing. So, uh, you know, people had somewhere to go. Someone, people had somewhere they could go and spend uh, money uh, with, um, you know, whatever entertainment was being on, on offer. So all the time, the ground was in use. So it wasn't the case that there was a match or a big match there every two weeks or every 10 days or whatever. It was constantly in use. And, and, and this really was, was very popular in, in West Belfast because... You know, you had all sorts and sizes. Uh, certainly, there was there was a very famous uh, a, a, um, athletics meeting held in the early 1900s, where a world champion came to to a, a sprinter came to to compete there, and he was on tour and he was he was he was traveling around uh, Britain, um, and the weather was dreadful. He I think he was probably in Belfast for about five or six hours. All I can remember reading about him was that he he um he was seasick as he arrived into Belfast. He, I think he managed to win his race and then off he went again. But that was an example of Celtic Park providing other kinds of entertainment. And I think it's fair to say that when the ground was earmarked for redevelopment, I'm sure that many Belfast Celtic fans would have been up in arms. The history of the team is quite remarkable, but how significant was the ground for the club? Well, the two things uh, were were so interlocked because uh, there again, you have to kind of look at the, the context. Belfast, West Belfast had very little um, until its team came along, until you had the amalgamation of a couple of junior teams in the late 1800s that became uh, Belfast Celtic. And so the people then began to support this football team that started at the bottom. Um, it, it, in its first season in senior football, it was at the bottom of the Irish League. It was never there thereafter. It moved its way up and spent most of the time during its 58 years in existence at the top of the Irish League. So for a people in that part of the city who very little in terms of representation, Housing was bad, you know, the unemployment was as bad in that part of the city as it would have been in, in other parts of the city too. But where they didn't have representation, say at a political level, at, at local council level, as, as would have been the case at the time, they had a football team. And once that team began to win things, it started out winning the County Antrim Shield when it was still a junior club, then it took over and began to dominate in senior football. It was somewhere where people 
could feel this is our team. This team represents who we are. And as long as it's winning, we're winning. We have something to kind of get up for every day of the week. Somewhere to go on a Saturday afternoon to, to watch them play or midweek, whenever. And, and when they're winning, then they are representing us, which was, you know, very important to the people of West Belfast in the absence of so many other things. And you have to also bear in mind that the, this team was a team made up not kind of of one side of the community. It was a team that represented all sides of the community. They were a professional football club. They paid good wages to their top players. When you were past your sell-by date as a player, you were out the door. They got rid of you because they were a business and they needed to grow all the time. They needed to be having a return on their investments. So they attracted all the best players. Um, one of the very important figures in their history would have been the manager, Elisha Scott, who had played with them uh, in the early 1900s. He was their goalkeeper. He went away to be uh, Liverpool's goalkeeper for 22 years. And when he came back to Belfast in the mid-1930s, initially as the player manager, he then he just took them on this marvellous adventure of, of winning every trophy that was possible to win. But uh, his background was uh, from the Presbyterian community, and he was able to attract a lot of uh, Protestant players to the club. They were made welcome. Uh, there was no problem with, the, with them coming from the community that, that, they, that they belonged to. Uh, they were treated very fairly uh, at Celtic Park. And for the most part, they loved their time there. I mean, there is an example of one player um, who um, he, he was a compositor with the newsletter and he just loved uh, playing at Celtic Park. He didn't want to go anywhere else. He had a job, the newspaper, and he had his football. That's all he wanted. And he had no interest in joining any other club. And I think it's fair to say that whenever the stadium was redeveloped into the park centre, you had the likes of the late great Jimmy McElinden, who refused to go to Yurt. Yes, I mean, Jimmy, Jimmy McElinden, uh, many people might remember, was uh, this distillery manager in, back in the day and the man credited with discovering Martin O'Neill who went on to have a hugely successful career in, in England and was manager of Celtic, uh, very successful there. Uh, and Jimmy McElinden spotted him when he was playing uh, with distillery and he was at, I think, St. Malachy's College. But Jimmy McElinden himself had had this uh, meteoric rise and this hugely successful career. He won an FA Cup medal with Portsmouth in 1939. He played uh, professionally with Belfast Celtic. He played with a few other clubs, but Celtic Belfast, that was his home. And he was heartbroken when the club folded. And although it did continue as a Greyhound stadium until it eventually closed in the in 1980s, I remember him telling me that once, once it opened as a shopping centre, he couldn't, he couldn't go in there. He told me there were too many ghosts 
and he just disapproved of it having been transformed from this 60,000 capacity stadium into into a shopping center mm-hmm. and if you take a walk up the falls road um you might be you you sorry you might see the likes of a green plaque now people might be mistaken for thinking that that's something related to the conflict but these plaques they're actually related to the Belfast Celtic Society do you mind explaining to our listeners a little bit more about them yeah yes James we we a few years ago we started this project with support from the Irish uh, FA and a few other funding bodies to develop what we've called the Celtic Circles, the Belfast Celtic Circles, in which we put up the, the ideas, borrowing from the, the, blue, the blue plaque idea of uh, placing something up in a building which is of significance and will tell the history maybe of somebody who was born there or lived there. And we have, um, we have this programme called the Belfast Celtic Circles, in which uh, you can take a walk along the Falls Road divert at various places, go into the city cemetery and visit the graves of um, Elisha Scott, the manager. Uh, Jimmy McElinden is buried there as well. Also a Milltown Cemetery. You can go in there and visit the graves of some of the players. Um, You can basically get an idea of the the catchment area that would have been uh, from where many of the players and those associated with the club would have would have come from and uh you know we have these actually available in the museum as well these little brochures so you can take a walk and learn a bit more about the club and as you say there in recent years the belfast celtic society have been keeping the memory of the club alive with the museum in the park center do you mind explaining a little bit about how that came about and what visitors to the museum can expect well, it really came uh, about uh, back in what, about 2003. Um, I had written a book called Paradise Lost and Found, the story of Belfast Celtic. I have kind of one of the rare copies here now that, that's available because it's, it's no longer in print. But that was based on a series of interviews, face-to-face interviews that I did with many of the players, such as Jimmy McElinden, Jimmy Jones, Johnny Denver, Many of the others, other people associated with the club, and uh, we published it. It was published back in 1999. Gosh, that's a long time ago. But the reaction to it was so positive. So many people who didn't know the story of Celtic wanted to find out a bit more, and so a group got together and and uh, decided to form the Belfast Celtic Society, which is a if you like a historical group. And the, the idea of our group is just to try in as many ways possible to keep the memory of the club alive because they were they were a, un, a unique institution in their day. And, and the, the tragedy that surrounds their departure from football, I mean, that, you know, there are those who would argue that West Belfast never recovered after Celtic left football in 1949. But uh, we, in our own way, are trying to keep the memory alive. Uh, we have a, a, a museum unit in the park centre where people can come and just see some of the exhibits that are, are on show there. Now, we don't, you know, they're not our exhibits. They are items that have been donated to us by f- families of former players, supporters, 
people who who just share in our idea of wanting the the, the club's memory to, to continue and um we have jerseys there we have um medals we have a, a collection of medals of um jimmy jones who was one of the the greatest footballers ever to play football in ireland he remains the all-time goal scorer in in irish football and in fact it was it was his um treatment at windsor park in 1948 when he controversially he was attacked had his leg broken uh, this was at the end of the the game with 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 linfield and that ultimately led to the club pulling out of the game but uh we have some of the items that he had in his career we have uh photographs we have match reports we have uh, various statistics that will give people an idea of, you know, their great uncle Frank or whoever who may have played for the club. We may be able to help people track down information on a relative who, who was a, uh, a professional or an amateur at the club back in the day. And so it's a, it's a resource that's there available for people to come along and just to enjoy and perhaps get a sense of the magnitude of this club because there's a very famous saying uh, which we continue to use now but back in the day it, it, it had great relevance and it was that uh, when we had nothing we had Belfast Celtic and then we had everything and that in a sense shows the devotion of those who supported the club you know when times were bad when there was no food on the table when you know, housing the situation was desperate, they had a football club that represented them. And as I said earlier on, Jim, James, the, you know, if the club was winning, they were winning. They had something to, to smile about. And well, I'm afraid that is all we have time for, Porik. Thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. And also a big thank you to each and every one of you for listening along at home. Not at all. And just follow us on Facebook. And if you want to come along and see what we have, it's open on a Wednesday and a Saturday. You're very welcome. James, thank you for your interest. Thank you very much, Porik. Until next time, Slán August Bannacht.